working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and this is the Working Drummer Podcast. Today we're talking with Tony Austin, who is part of the Los Angeles-based collective, The West Coast Get Down. Tony is coming off the release of saxophonist Kamasi Washington's three-disc album entitled The Epic and the subsequent touring in support of it, and is about to embark on another round of uh, CD releases and tours for the next West Coast Get Down project led by bassist Miles Mosley. Tony was born and raised in Los Angeles, and starting at the age of seven, was mentored by Roger Lynn, a pioneer of electronic music making and inventor of the MPC-60 drum machine. Please keep in touch with us on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gig life using the hashtag Working Drummer. And leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That all helps us grow, and we appreciate it. Hey, folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares. And, well, do you believe it? Love at first sight. Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker. A 14 by 6 8-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings. I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum. And our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare, available in 14x6 or 13x5.5, and the Equinox, a 14x5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the micro-lock, cylinder drive with the butt-end adjuster, and English mat. Okay, you know that little click-click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. In the very near future on this podcast, we are going to sit down and talk with Russ Miller and get the backstory on these snares, as well as some very interesting developments coming your way through the Black Panther Design Lab line of instruments. You're going to want to hear this. So I dug this talk with Tony. I think uh, what he and Kamasi Washington and the rest of the West Coast Get Down are doing uh, is a shot in the arm for jazz, especially for West Coast jazz. And they're doing some of the some of the work that needs to be done to expand the jazz audience. So let's get to it with Tony Austin. The main reason I wanted to talk to you was uh, because you are part of uh, this this new uh, phenomenon, <laughs> this new phenomenon powerhouse in uh, in jazz, which is Kamasi Washington and the. Uh, the West Coast Get Down. Um, so, just tell people a little bit about about Kamasi and and that group and uh, and this three disc album that uh, is your debut. Um, yeah. So you know, uh, Kamasi Washington and uh, all the members of the West Coast Get Down. Basically, the West Coast Get Down is a, a collective of. Uh, musicians that are born and raised in Los Angeles that all grew up together. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've all known each other, including Kamasi, since we were in high school and, and even earlier. Some some of us have known each other since elementary school and since before we could talk, even. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, L.A., for a really long time, uh, as far as like a, a jazz, you know, a place on the roadmap for jazz has kind of been 
kind of quiet, you know, as, as, as far as the jazz universe has been going in New York has, you know, everybody pretty much moved to New York if they want to play jazz or want to make a record, you know, or, or you go to Europe or whatever, but jazz, jazz in LA has been kind of a quiet, a quiet thing, uh, for so long, ex- except for us, cause we've been here our whole entire lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, none of us have moved or, or lived anywhere else except for Los Angeles. And we've been here time just trucking along for the last, you know, 30 some odd years. Uh, playing with with each other in different sort of uh, combinations. So you know, Kamasi, you know, has been playing with me since I think we were. He was like fifteen or fourteen or something like that. Yeah. Um, and all of us uh, in the collective have utilized our group and and have became leaders of that group for for different different things. Um, you know, like uh, the bass player Miles Mosley. Uh, leads the same group of people. West Coast Get Down. He's releasing a record actually tomorrow hmm. um, called The Uprising. Um, and you know everybody in the group basically has sort of a leadership role and has songs that they want to play. And we just since we grew up together and we all know each other's playing really well, we just seem to want to play with each other more often now uh, than not. Um, uh, you know, we, we, for, for a really long time, all of us were on the road with other, you know, artists, you know, sidelining for them, you know, Kamasi was on the road with Snoop Dogg. Um, uh, I was, I was, they were also on the road and I was part of it for a little bit uh, with Lauren Hill. Mm-hmm. You know, I was playing with Gwen Stefani and, and, uh, you know, a uh, bunch of other people. And, and I think we just decided probably about four or five years ago to start building our own, our own venture, you know, our own sort of branding and our own, you know, investing in ourselves and not getting up there and smashing for some other artists, but getting up there and smashing for ourselves so that we could sort of build our own names and our own, you know, our own sort of style of music. Um, yeah. And it seems like the, um, the, the, the album that you guys put out and the, you know, the touring that you've done since then um, on the, on the face of it, you know, seems like a, a huge, project and and something that would just be next to impossible to get off the ground and in some ways it is but um it it also seems like it was kind of the natural progression of this relationship in this community that you guys had had for so long yeah um well you know the the record actually is there's a really good story behind the record um about four years ago um kamasi you know kamasi had recorded other things before like small projects at his little home studio and kind of sold them on the back of his, his car, you know, or at, you know, little tiny gigs that we go to. Um, a couple of the other guys had done the same thing, recorded at Kamasi Studio. I have a little studio, too, at my house. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd mix the records or, you know, try to help engineer it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, about four years ago, um, well, before that, we had a, a, a huge residency at this place called The Piano Bar for about eight years. Where Kamasi, Ryan Porter, me, Cameron Graves, and Brandon would play twice a week. Right. Every Wednesday and every Friday, and we just bring in songs, just just anything we were working on, we bring it in and just play it, no rehearsal, no nothing, just mm-hmm. go right at it. And the the idea for that residency was to uh, try to reapproach the song, whoever brought their song, and try to reapproach it and not play anything that was sort of stock, and just be really open about it and try to recreate or reinterpret uh, that song every time it came in until we found something that was, was perfect for it. Mm-hmm. And so that led to us actually like shedding a lot of Kamasi songs before they were recorded and actually coming, like already knowing what to do because right. we had played them thousands of times at this, at this, uh, re- um, residency that we had twice a week. So about four years ago, Kamasi, uh, uh, we started talking whatever. And Kamasi's like, yeah, I want to do another record. And I was like, yo man, like, 
these songs are sounding tight. We have this really uh, successful residency. Like, why don't we like, why don't you like get together some dough and like, like go into a real studio and let's, let's do this for real. And like, maybe you'll end up with a product that like, you know, you can release through a record label or something, you know, mm -hmm. just like matter of fact, I was saying that. Right. And, um, miles was around at the same time too. And we were working on a record and Miles was like, yeah, well, I'm, why don't we, why don't, why don't both you and I pull our money together and see if we can get a studio for like a week <clears throat> and we'll both record both of our records. And since <clears throat> I'll be on your record and you'll be on mine, I won't, you don't have to pay me for playing and I don't have to pay you for playing. <clears throat> and the idea was that I was going to engineer it. Um, so we started looking around at studios and things were kind of expensive. Um, and, and it was like, you know, for a week, it was like going to cost us like a, you know, 20 grand at the studios that we wanted to do it at. Right. Um, <clears throat> so we kind of kept on looking and then kind of told other members in the West Coast get down. Hey, you know, Kamasi's looking to record and Miles is going to, you know, throw in on it. You know, are you guys going to be available around December? And then I think uh, Ryan was like, well, I want to record a record, too, man. Like can I throw in some money? Like maybe that'll help like get us a better studio. I want to throw in some money and, 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 uh, you know, add to the fun and, and, you know, same deal. Like I'll play on all your records. You play on mine. We don't have to pay each other for, for playing on each other's records, but we'll all buy into this studio time. Mm -hmm. So the word kind of spread around to the rest of the guys in the West Coast get down. And by the end of it, we had about eight people that wanted to go into the studio and make a record. Wow. So we had enough funds to lock out the studio for a month. Man. Uh, and in December, starting December 1st, uh, ending December 31st. And we pretty much went in there every day from like nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the morning the next day and just cut, cut eight different records at the same time. We, we did like maybe 13 songs a day, Wow, you know, with multiple takes and stuff like that. We had a schedule, you know, it was going to be Kamasi from two to four, Ryan from four to eight. And, you know, we, we tried to move everything around so that everybody can get their time in. And basically the idea was that everyone played on everybody's record. I engineered everything mm -hmm. and we kind of did it as a sort of community, you know, co-op recording project. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, Kamasi, we, I think we, when we were done, we had recorded something like 180 songs or something like that. I think, <laughs> I think Kamasi left with like maybe 40 some odd songs that we had recorded for him. Wow. Um, you know, Miles left with his record that he's releasing right now. Uh, tomorrow and you know the other guys left with a wealth of of records that are going to be coming out very soon this year right um so that's kind of why kamasi's record is a three disc situation because he basically had to narrow all those all 40 of those songs down just to the the, the three discs that are on there i think there's like 18 songs on there now right and you it's know, not and, uh, it's not many songs per disc like they're pretty well yeah a lot of these songs are like 20 minutes long man, yeah you know yeah. and uh um I mean, you know, I, I was engineering it and, and, you know, worked closely with Kamasi through every process of it. Um, and we recorded some of the overdubs and some of like the uh, vocals and percussion and even Steven at my house. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I pretty much worked with Kamasi from the length for the length of the whole all the whole record all the way up to, to the, the mixing and, and um, sending off the masters. Yeah. And, um, you know, his songs were long and we had to we had to edit some of them down and be really creative about fitting all this stuff onto even three discs. Which right. was I mean, just just the stuff you decided to keep added up to like four hours of music. It's a long it's a long record. <laughs> and you know what? To be honest, to be to be quite like brutally honest, like I didn't think it was going to do very well. Mm. You know, it, it sounded awesome and, and dope to me. But, you know, like I said before, jazz has been so quiet in L.A., it didn't it, to me, and I think everybody else in, in, in the collective in the West Coast get down kind of felt like, well, if nobody's nobody has been listening to us for the last thirty years, why are they gonna listen to us now? Like 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 we've been making this shit for you know 
30 years. Right. You know, this is nothing new to us. Right. Like, and Kamasi comes out with this, basically a record that, that encompasses, you know, right. his grandiose idea that we've known about for forever that we've played, you know, and, 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 and took, taken part in, uh, since we were kids, you know, uh, a lot of us, including me, especially uh, quietly, I didn't never was very vocal about it, but I didn't think the record was going to do very well. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't think people were going to get it. I, I, th- I thought it was going to be too epic and too cool and too massive for people to really connect to. And I, I thankfully I was absolutely wrong because <laughs> it, it had quite the opposite effect. And it, it, it seemed like, at least to me, from what I've heard from a lot of the fans and what I've heard from a lot of uh, other people that, that really dig the record is that it's refreshing yeah. and it's something new and it's something different. And uh, you know, there's a lot of artistry and everybody really enjoys the, the level of talent that uh you know is in Kamasi's band and the level of, of talent and composition that, that that is exemplified in the record and you know that that's really uh gratifying as as someone who grew up in LA to hear people say that about your jazz music because mm-hmm. you know LA is not really known for jazz man and and like it's really cool to think that we're we're kind of helping to change that narrative or at least putting something out there that people can point to and say, yeah, well, there's jazz in LA. Check out these dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it also seems like you're, you know, the, the group as a whole is, is less concerned about winning the approval of existing jazz audiences as they are about, you know, expanding the jazz audience and, and letting it reach more people, younger people. Uh, and, and from, from there, letting them, discover you know your influences and kamasi's influences like wayne shorter and art blakey and all that um but you know giving them the door of this huge spectacle of a show that's just like sensory overload for (laughs) for four hours yeah Um, i mean you know when we had that residency uh at this place called the piano bar it was a you know it was a small club and there's a lot of young people there mm -hmm. and it was kind of an experiment for us like like we started that residency like eight years ago maybe more shit uh, we started that residency with the idea that we wanted to bring our music and our aesthetic about music, whether it be jazz or whatever it is. We wanted to bring that 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 aesthetic to a younger audience and to a you know a, a, a new audience. You know, like the typical jazz audience. You know, it's a lot older, and 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 jazz isn't. You know, we're not in the era of of, of Wayne Shorter or, or or you know uh, Brad Mildow. You know, selling you know platinum on on record labels anymore. You know, jazz is a very small business nowadays, especially. Right record sales wise and and even touring so you know i feel like there's an opportunity right now to capitalize on people that are buying records like the majority of people that are buying records young people and like you know people that wouldn't necessarily know that they like jazz because they've never really been introduced to it properly Mm -hmm. jazz has has this you know stigma of being you know an older person's music or being you know very uh 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 uh, being very scholastic or like, you know, like something like a study, like, like, Oh, I feel like I'm in, you know, music appreciation class when I have mm-hmm. to listen to jazz. So our idea when we started that, that residency was to almost like experiment and try to play a trick on our audience and <laughs> give them this jazz music without them knowing it, you right, know? Right. So a lot of it was hidden within things that were kind of approachable, um, you know, certain beats, at least, at least on my end as a drummer, you know, certain beats that could be approachable to people that wanted to dance or people that, that wanted to get into music, but it wasn't as, you know, strict pocket all the time. It was at putting in these jazz impl- influences, putting in these little Art Blakey-isms and putting in these little, you know, um, uh, uh, Tony Williams-isms, you know? Yeah, yeah. And sort of like like catching them with this thing that they that they can easily grasp and then slowly 
adding in things that are a little bit more complicated or a little bit, you know, a little bit deeper, you know, and, and I think everybody took their instrument to that same respect. You know, it's like we, we'd catch them and get them on the hook with something that that's very approachable and then start expanding it and start, you know, making it bigger and, and, and more deep and basically giving them this thing that was jazz, but they didn't know to call it jazz. They right. just thought it was great music. You right, know? right. And I think Kamasi's record and definitely Kamasi's tour is just an extension of, of, of that, of that, experiment pretty much and, yeah. and it, it's a winning experiment because there's a ton of young people that have been coming to to our shows and at these festivals that we've been playing at mm-hmm. and it's it's super rewarding because because this is the type of people we want to be playing this music for mm-hmm. you know uh, the older audience is already there and we definitely enjoy playing our music for them too and, and usually it's in a different you know setting at like a performance art center or something that's you know a, a little bit more of a listening environment mm-hmm. but you know, there's a whole crowd out there that wants to just party and listen to music and buy records and, and buy dance. t-shirts and dance and spend a lot of money and, and be really appreciative of, of the artists that they're listening to. And they show their appreciation a little bit different. And we want to play for them, too. We want right. to play for everybody. Right. You know, like the other our, thing, our, sorry to interrupt. Go, go you, but the, no, go the other thing I like about what you guys are doing is is taking jazz out of the jazz club. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there there are certain virtues about the jazz club setting, but um I think, uh, you know, something, something as cacophonous and we keep using the word epic, but it is epic. Like something as epic as what you guys do would, would just not work in a jazz club. Um, and I think some of what some of the other jazz you see, if you see it at a big festival or something, they're on this huge stage with a huge Mm -hmm. audience and, you know, they're, they're still playing, you know, sort of understated, subtle, intimate jazz, and it just doesn't translate. What you guys are doing is taking your your vibe, your big, huge spectacle of a vibe, and putting it in appropriate environments, in festivals and theaters, where people can really experience it to the fullest. I think you know it's 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 a good sort of uh, refreshing fact that that we're doing that. I mean, that's that's not necessarily that has that wasn't our goal. And like like uh, I'm sure Kamasi, you know. Couldn't imagine that we'd be playing at these gigantic festivals on these huge stages, playing jazz music, you know. Um, and and definitely the 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 uh, like when they started booking us, they were trying to put us into a lot of like jazz clubs or whatever, and it just wasn't working because we we're too loud, and too big, and, and too boisterous. Right. Uh, but you know, there's there's when you go to a bigger venue, there's more people, man, and there's more. It, it's more of a spectacle, and it's you know, I don't know, it's just bigger, man. And and I think our our definitely Kamasi feels this way and I definitely feel this way. Like, like we want to play music for everybody. You know, we want to, mm-hmm. we don't want to be exclusive. Like back in the day when jazz was, was popular music, it was for everybody. It wasn't exclusive. It was for, you know, young people, old people for, you know, black people, white people, anybody, anybody who wanted to come to the club. So uh, I think we're still trying to keep that, that, that aesthetic about our music and, and, and that um, approachability and that accessibility about our music. You know, jazz club seems very limiting. Not everybody is going to go, to you know catalinas to not a lot of young people go to catalinas not a lot of people not a lot of young people know about that place you right know? right you know some young people know about blue well but still it's not you know and we played at blue well and we played at catalinas before mm-hmm. and it's a different show you know right. it's definitely we, we we try to play more intimately and we try to you know uh be more dynamic and 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 be more close but you know the music can take on another another gear when you're on stage and there's twenty thousand people in front of you yeah then your then your 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 range of dynamics is is exponentially larger you know mm-hmm. so you could go like all the way to mars and beyond and then bring it back 
Yeah. So it's it it, it I, what's funny about it really is that it op- it opened up sort of more things about the way that we play being mm-hmm. on 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 that stage and, and playing in front of those people and then, you know it reminds me of like the 70s with, with like um you know with with like a weather report or i was like, i was gonna Orchestra, say like you know? your, your shows remind me of weather report it's a big huge yeah. crowd everybody's standing yeah. up everybody's dancing like a jazz club mm-hmm. cannot hold that vibe yeah you know yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's great. You know, I've been uh, lately. I've been watching some older videos of Weather Report and like Mahavishnu Orchestra, and mm-hmm. you know, some of the stuff from the '70s when the fusion era was was really popping. And it, and it's like very reminiscent. Like I feel like wow, this stuff's happening again. Like people are like into this type of like. And it's not that we sound like Weather Report, but this sort of idea of music that like it can be larger and and there's lots of in- instruments on stage and they're kind of just like you know, free forming and, and making this shit happen on stage, you know, in the moment, you know, right. and like, and, and people were into it then. So there's no reason why people can't be into it now, you know? Right. Right. And speaking of having people on stage, like the, you know, the names you, you ticked <coughs> off the, the members of the West coast get down is, is what nine, nine people. Yeah. We, I think we travel with right now. Kamasi travels with eight between eight and nine people. There's, there's, and that's half of his concept for the band. Uh, right now we travel with two drummers, Usually it's me and Ronald Brunner. Um, Ronald's been busy finishing his record, so it's been this other guy, uh, Robert Miller, mm-hmm. who we all who we also grew up with. Um, so two drummers, bass, which is Miles Mosley, plays upright. Sometimes Steven will sit in, uh, Steven Brunner. Or everybody knows him as Thundercat. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it'll be two drums and two bass. Uh, keyboards, which is Brandon Coleman, and he plays like Moogs and like, uh, you know, clavinet and all kinds of crazy, funky stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Patrice, the singer, and uh, we have three horns. We have Ryan Porter, Kamasi Washington, and his dad, Ricky right. Washington. Right, right. Uh, and then sometimes when it's the full group, it's it's two basses, two drums, two keys, four horns, and and a vocalist. Right, and then for so, your for your CD release, uh, which there's a great video oh, of uh, on on YouTube. I think it was the NPR Jazz Night in America, yeah. right? If you, yeah, if you yeah. search that on YouTube. That I mean, how many people were on stage for that? Twenty-five, uh, shit. more than that. Was like twenty-eight, twenty-nine. We had a DJ. We had a, a full string section, a choir. That was nuts. Yeah, dude. like yeah. there was he, basically zero room on that stage, man. And that's not a small <laughs> stage, and it was packed out. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, we it was, it was kind of stressful going in there, and uh, I I also helped Kamasi sort of organize that concert, um, and I helped him sort of production manage it and like make it happen because. You know, it was his first big concert, and not a lot of people know, you know, about what you need and how to make it all work. And his, uh, you know, definitely making that particular concert work was an under undertaking. Uh, but you know, when I saw the stage, I was like, "Oh shit, how yeah. are we gonna fit all these people on here, man?" Yeah, man. And we just did it. We just everybody was cramped up on there. You know, we had we had a percussionist, we had four horns, people coming and back and forth, sitting in, right? Two bass, uh, a, a DJ in the back, like it's like six or eight singers. There was eight singers. Wow. There was I think there was eight. One two three. One two three. I think there was eight string players. Mm-hmm. It was nuts. A conductor that was also sitting in on on violin. Uh, it was absolutely nuts yeah. and and like there was no absolutely no room on stage we were struggling just to stay on the actual stage like my, i had to enter my drum kit from off stage like i had to climb up on the side of the stage to get up <laughs> to where my my drum kit was you know i had to have someone like give me a boost you know right. like, 
And like, like I could I had to stand still because like if I stepped wrong in any direction, either I was going to put my foot through someone's base or I was going to fall off the stage, you know. <laughs> so it was. Oh, I mean, it, it was in par with with I believe with with what Kamasi's idea was. Yeah. Uh, from from the get go, what I've, what our idea has been from the get go is to make this big explosive, uh, you know, huge splash and and sort of I think. What it ended up doing was waking people up, like, "Oh shit, what the hell is this?" Yeah. You know, like, yeah, we could have been out there with the with the quartet and and just done the regular old deal, and everybody knows that 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 look, everybody knows that sound. There's something special about that. Mm-hmm. But being on stage with as many musicians as you can fit on it, you know, putting together a, his his record release show was six hours worth of music. Yeah, we did the whole entire record, wow, front to back. You know, that's something that's spectacular. You yeah, know, that's, like, no like you said, that. just just the shock and awe of of you know uh. that scale. You know, in a jazz show, you know, when people think of a jazz show, they do not think of that. But just the scale of what you guys did, like you said, was kind of an explosion that just screamed at everybody and was like, "Wake up, we're doing this!" And yeah, people and think, people I, had to pay attention. I, I, yeah, and I think people did, and, and I think that's why you know, Kamasi's project has been so successful since, since the record release, you know, yeah. it has a lot to do with it. Cause it's, you know, we're on the road, but even with the small group, it's two drums, bass, uh, keys, three horns and a singer. And we're the largest group, uh, definitely the largest jazz group. And sometimes even the most largest group on the road. Mm-hmm. And it's a spectacle having two drums up there. You know, people are like, what, what's this? And then, you know, me, me and the other drummer, we do like, they, everybody clears the stage and we do like a, like a, you know, we trade off and do like a sort of uh, a, a group solo or whatever. And it's, you know, everybody in the in the band's such an awesome musician and, and Kamasi features them very well. It's like, it is this spectacle. It's this thing that no one else is doing. And and to to that credit, I think that's that's why it's it's been so successful. When people think of West Coast jazz, what do you want them to think? Oh, man. <laughs> Because, I mean, the reason I ask is, like, you know, when I think of West Coast jazz, I think back to the cool jazz thing with Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan and, and that whole thing. And I think people don't really have a context for what West Coast jazz is beyond that. Um, well, this might be controversial, but, um, you know, West Coast jazz, especially like in the 70s, uh, even in the 60s, definitely in the 80s, uh, has had this sort of style of like being laid back and easy and sort of, you know, uh, you know, easy listening, kind of. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think we're I think we're trying to change that. I think we're trying to make it energetic. We're trying to make it vast. We're trying to make it deep. We're trying to make it. Um, we're trying to make it grandiose. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make it highly creative. And and I think most importantly, we're trying to make it approachable. And we're trying to make it into something that doesn't need to label jazz for people to come and listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can come listen to it no matter what, no matter what music they're into. They, they can they can like this music, mm-hmm. and they're going to like this music. And I think that's the most important part. Um, jazz doesn't have to be this thing that's exclusive. It doesn't have to be this thing that, you know, you have to uh, have a certain grade point average to go to or, or you know, make a certain amount of money a year to, to happen. Like, uh, I think we're, I think, to answer your question simply, I think, I want people to think West coast jazz is the music of the people, Hmm. no matter who you are, you know? And I think, I think everybody in the West coast get down kind of supports that idea and, and, and supports that objective. 
talk about the double drummer thing. How much experience had you had with that before before doing this project? And and talk about playing with with uh, Ronald Bruner Jr. specifically. Well, so I think it was about maybe six or seven years ago um, we had that residency at, at Piano Bar, and um, you know it was really cracking. Lots of people were coming, and you know. Uh, Steven Bruner would come sit in all the time or, you know, it was like we, everybody in the West Coast get down our sort of like connection of friends that had grown up together. Once that night started getting popping, everybody would come by and either sit in or if I couldn't make it, I would, I would call Ronald to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if Miles couldn't make it, we'd get Steven or some of the other guys that were sort of in our, in our collective of, of, of friends. So it was calm, like every Wednesday and Friday night, if you had nothing to do, you come down to the piano bar and come hang out and, and jam with the homies, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so I think about seven years ago, uh, Ronald was on the road uh, a lot with, with Chaka Khan. Uh, and he had just got back and he calls me up and he's like, Hey man, he's like, man, I mean, I've been on the road just, you know, playing pop music and, you know, playing like just, you know, pocket for so long. I just want to come, come by and play some real music, man. He's like, you doing the gig tonight? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, do you mind if I if 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 I bring like like a little bass drum hi hat snare man we and, and we play two drums? And I was like, you want to you want to bring your another kit, man? It's not gonna go fit. Like like it's a small little area, dude. How are you? He's like, no no, I'll bring something small, man. We'll just do two drums. Like I'll just I'll do something real simple. And I was like, all right, come on down, fuck it. Like yeah. I'm not gonna say no, you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> come on, that'll be cool. So he came down and he, and he and and we set up two drum kits, man. Like we smushed it on this little tiny playing area, right? And it was immediately magical, and it was awesome. It was dope. And Kamasi was like, "I want that in my band." <laughs> yeah, Miles was like, "Yeah, I want that too." So everybody started like getting their gears turning about about this two drummer thing. And Kamasi, you know, before that had either hired me or Ronald Bruner Jr. Mm-hmm. uh to to do his gigs around town and after that day he hired both of us hmm. so you know we had been playing two drummers for a good amount of time before we we got into the studio to actually record the record and then after we recorded the record um you know which was like four years ago we had been playing two drummers for at least three and a half years before uh that record release happened and before we went on the record so you know Playing with Ronald Bruner Jr. is uh, different than playing with any other drummer, you know, two drums. He and I grew up together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known Ronald since he was like seven or eight years old. Um, we went to the same, um, he was in elementary school and I was in junior high. We went to the same school um, for a while and I actually met his dad first. Uh, and then uh, then I was introduced to him and, and we've known each other for a really long time. He came, when I was in college at CalArts, he came out to CalArts to study there because I was there, you know, and, 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 um, what makes it different when we play together is because we grew up together, you know, everybody in the West coast get them because we grew up together. We all kind of like the same stuff. Mm-hmm. We all know, know about each other's influences and, and we all have a very deep musical dialogue. So it's very easy for us to communicate musically without saying anything, mm-hmm. you know, even just a look or, even the way I hit a snare drum, like I can change the direction of the music with the entire band. Um, and it goes even deeper with me and Ronald, uh, Ronald Bruner Jr., because we're both drummers and we both like a lot of the same drummers and we both listen to a lot of the same music, like, like deeply. Like Ronald, 
Ronald pretty much knows every drummer that that has picked up a stick. Mm-hmm. He's like he's like Kobe Bryant. Uh, uh, he's like Kobe Bryant. He studies every single drummer. <laughs> like if you have a YouTube video out, he's seen it. Yeah. If you did a lick, he knows it. <laughs> you know if if you were if you ever played with anybody that was on tour, he knows who you are by date. You know, right? Uh, so he's like he is an extremely like intensive studier of music, man. And and you know my study is definitely not that deep, um, but there are a lot of a lot a lot of genres and a lot of uh, artists that that we both connect on, mm-hmm. and that we, and and a lot of the same language, musical language that we've studied. So it it made it really easy to to play two drummers with Ronald. You know, like you know Ronald's a, a, a and, and this is no surprise to anybody. Ronald plays a lot of drums. You know, <laughs> very loudly and very fucking fast. Yeah, you know? and, loud and proud. And <laughs> loud and proud, and and you know a uh, lot of people. Will know that about me like i play a shit ton of drums man you know very loud and proud and so i mean just on paper it looks like a bad idea you get these two dudes that play <laughs> a shit ton of drums it's gonna sound like you know dishes falling from from uh you know a dish rack for right. for you know two hours right um but it didn't you know like like i think there's there's a, a an overall sense that we want to create music and we want to you know, at times it, it does get very boisterous and it does get very loud, but we try to balance that with other things so that it's not just monotonous and it does become this special, unique thing that only he and I can do, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and uh, you know, we, I've been, we've been doing it with a different drummer, uh, Robert Miller, for a while, and that dynamic's definitely different than the dynamic that, that Ronald and I have. I feel like the, the dynamic that Ronald and I have since we've, studied it together and since you know we've talked about it together and since we've been playing the two drummer thing for a while it's very easy to to like not only play together but to also go other places together mm-hmm. you know like if ronald changes the 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 rhythm or or goes into a different beat like i'm on it on beat two on right. the next eighth note i'm on it or vice versa you know yeah i'll play a little idea he'll take a hold of hold of it and go somewhere with it or vice versa he'll play an idea i'll take a hold of it We'll go somewhere and, and when we do our, our sort of co drum solo feature uh, in, in Kamasi's show, it's very much just like that. Like we don't plan anything, we don't talk about it. We just get on stage and Ronald will point at me or I'll point at him and he'll just start something. Yeah, and, I think it's it's we'll something that, something that the two of you do well. Like when when you're in a, du- a double drummer situation, no matter who the other drummer is or no matter what kind of music you're playing, I think it's essential to like give e- give each other space. Let each other pick your spots, um, but also, like you were saying, just just say yes to yeah. like whatever whatever the other one lays down. If they want to go in a certain direction, um, you know, just be be on the same page with that and take it there with them. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong; it can be frustrating. You know, a lot of like we don't hit the stage on a hundred cylinders every single time. You know, mm-hmm. like we don't we don't play perfectly every day, and and. You know, all of us, and I think it's a credit to to you know the talent that we have. All of us are very hard on ourselves. So there's been nights where even Kamasi says it, the whole show was shit and it's horrible, and it's probably really great to everybody else. But you know, we we are constantly very critical of 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 what we play and, and how we play it. And so you know, sometimes it it feels painful to to, <laughs> to like you know play drums with someone else because like you have one idea and he has another idea and like the ideas just aren't aren't coming together (laughs) and you're stuck on stage for two hours like butting heads you know it happens you know it happens and and i think 
to really make it work right, like you said, you have to like give space and leave space, mm-hmm. and not just you know like uh, I found I found you know that this this is very helpful playing with two drummers is to not only like when you're playing is to not only like like think of it like okay I'll just wait my turn, but think of it in a way where it's like I'm gonna send this space to the other drummer so he can fill it instead of me filling it. Mm-hmm. You know, as a drummer, everybody has like this need to sort of do something every four bars or, or when the music's building, you want to build it up too. Or if you're going into another section, you want to kind of announce that section for the rest of the band or, or do something that sort of bridges the transition from one, one thing to the next. Right. So you could kind of use that, that need to set the other drummer up, mm-hmm. you know, which is, which is weird, which is a thing I don't think a lot of drummers think about, especially when you're in a two drummer situation is okay. Here we're coming to this section. Let me set this guy up. Back, 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 back. You got it. Bam. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I, I have found that like an interesting sort of new thing that I've discovered uh, about playing with two drummers is setting the other guy up. Yeah. You know, not just like being complimentary to what the guy's playing or, or laying out or, or playing something, you know, below him or playing something, you know, underneath him, but us both playing and, and taking up equal parts of the space of music and then, and then, us setting each other up to 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 have moments or to to take the music somewhere else. You know? Yeah, is that is that something that you've uh, explored in in other situations where you're the only drummer? Like, uh, in, you know, instead of passing that space to another drummer, you know, passing that space to the keys or the bass or or something else and let them have it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, my style of drumming. You know, I, I listen intensely um, and I'm reactive to to what's happening in the band, and so I'm very use use i'm very used to like setting other people up in the band you mm-hmm. know it, like it's musical to me like like providing a space and then having the bass player take it like that's part of the dynamics of it because you know you lay out and it creates this void and then you come back in and it's like you can come back in even more powerful and it kind of uplifts uplifts the music uh and you know uh you know comping behind uh you know kamasi or comping behind any other horn player like there's always a back and forth dialogue of of us setting each other up but you know i've never thought about setting up another drummer i never had the experience of it but mm-hmm. i am used to setting up everybody else in the band so i feel like it was an easy thing to discover and a, and a, a very comfortable thing to discover and, and utilize with the other drummer so where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums custom drums and legendary drummers not so modern drummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. A recurring theme in a lot of the interviews I do is... uh, you know, a lot of a lot of drummers have a special partnership with a specific bassist. Um, and <coughs> with you, I think that's obviously with Miles Mosley. Um, so, talk about the various projects that you've done with Miles and and the way that you know that you two have sort of gone through your journey together and separately through music. Sure. 
Uh, you know, Miles and I met when he was 14 years old. Um, the uh, Thelonious Monk School of Jazz um, decided that they were going to make an office on the West Coast in, in Los Angeles. And they sent out this lady, Barbara Seeley, and this guy, Bob uh, Broadhead, to sort of make an office and, like, start putting their, their, their feelers out to different jazz programs around Los Angeles. And when they came to Los Angeles, they wanted to do like an inaugural sort of concert. And um, they called me. I was at I was at I was at a LA County High School for the Arts. They called me to do the drums. They called Miles to play bass. He was over at Hamilton. They brought some guy down from Oakland, Howard Wiley. That was a, a saxophone player. They used uh, Donald Vega was on piano, and uh, uh, trombone player was Isaac Smith. And they just kind of threw together like this high school all-star group combo. And we did this concert at Catalina's, the old Catalina's, uh, to sort of announce that the Felonious Monk School was coming to uh, the West Coast and was coming to Los Angeles. So that's where I met Miles. Uh, and I think he had like just started getting into jazz, like maybe uh, only been playing jazz for maybe a few years prior to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like L.A., as far as musicians are concerned, it's, it's a small place, man. Like, like once you kind of like, know you like a cat and know you like playing with a dude, you kind of keep playing with them. You know, you keep, you keep your, your friends around, you know, everybody's moving in and out of this town. It's hard to really know. It takes a while to know people musically. And once you have that strong musical foundation and relationship with someone, you tend to keep them around and keep calling them up for other projects. So yeah. throughout our, our, our childhood, you know, and and you know uh, miles was at hamilton with with kamasi and, and so kamasi was using miles a lot and you know uh we just kind of all kept calling each other for our gigs you know i'd get a gig you know at some stupid restaurant you know playing for two hours or you know i'd get a thing at fifth street dick or kamasi would get a thing at fifth street dicks and he'd call me up and call miles up you know or, or miles would get you know miles would start this new project called brothel jazz and he'd, he'd be playing at, at you know, some goth club and, and he'd call me up cause he knew I, I can play. And right. Like I, like getting me to be on the page of his new project wouldn't be, wouldn't be a struggle. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so being able to communicate with each other musically and, and even verbally our, our communication with each other is very shorthand. So, you know, we just kept calling each other on each other's projects, you know, and, and miles, um, you know, started MDing, he MDed for, for, uh, Lauren Hill and he called me on that. And, um, like I said, he, he started up his, his own projects and, and kept calling me, and after a while, we're like, well, I guess, I guess you're my bass player and I'm your drummer, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, I, I come from a very heavy, heavy engineering and audio engineering background. Um, that's, that's pretty much the other half of, of what I do. I play drums and I'm also a, an audio engineer. Mm -hmm. um, and very like into the technical side of, of sound reproduction and all that stuff. So when Miles started messing around with his pedals, um, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen his rig, but he doesn't just play upright bass. It's like upright bass to distortion and wah and like uh, uh, delay and phaser. And like it, the instrument basically sounds like Jimi Hendrix, but with a big ass upright bass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he creates this gigantic tone that no one, no one's creating on the upright bass. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Um, and, and it's very hard to create it on the upright bass because if you try to take a regular, you know, 300 year old German bass and plug it into a wall, all you're going to get is feedback. Right. Um, and as soon as you turn the, the, the volume up on, on amp, the thing is just going to go, it's going to sound, like, it's going to just start, start screaming. So when Miles started messing around with the idea of 
playing pedals. That's exactly how his bass sounded. It sounded horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, it was really bad. Like everybody was like, "Man, this is." I see we're trying to go, but shit, you need to like <laughs> learn something, man. Yeah. Like, like, like this is bad. Right. Um, so me being the the audio engineer I, I was, I'd always give him pointers, man. Like, like why don't you try this, or why don't you try plugging in this that way, or you know. And eventually he got he got a bass uh, he got a bass maker that was um, that made him a bass that that wasn't supposed to feed back as much. Mm-hmm. So then we could be more experimental. And so a lot of times he would just call me up and be like, "I want this sound that's, that like." It's like distortion, but then it'll go, but I can just bow it and it'll, it'll do that. And I was like, oh, I know what you want. You want this pedal. And I'd send him a picture of the pedal, show him how to plug it in. So, you know, it's it's like uh, we weren't just a bass drum duo. We were kind of like, you know, Miles would, would call me for like advice about his pedal board. You know, hmm. like we were just good friends and just good creative people. So, you know, in the last, um, eight years we've we've done a lot of like co-creating together um we worked we, i produced i produced his record that he's releasing tomorrow uh, mm-hmm. called the uprising so um that just came from him coming to me saying hey i want to do another record and i was like well let's do it at my place i got i got you know enough equipment to make it sound really awesome and uh you know we can just do it as a trio and then go rent a studio later and add strings and then like the full band and so that's exactly what we did and uh, you know, I produced his record from beginning to finish. Cool. Um, and and it's really exciting to have actually have that record being released um, tomorrow. Um, and that feature that record also features Kamasi and the rest of the West Coast Get Down. And then on top of that, Miles and I have been working on a project that we're calling right now BFI. Right, that's your is, duo thing, right? Yeah, it's just me and him. It's just me playing drums and like I'm triggering samples, and he's playing bass and he's singing. Wow. And so that that group just came out of like a complete experiment um we were at nam i think four or five years ago and they wanted him to play for this thing called bass bash that they do every year and miles you know nam is hectic and it's like crazy sometimes miles didn't want to bring the whole band because it seemed like they didn't really have time for us to sound check so he was like, why don't we just like just do it, me and you, just just bass and drums? And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I, I, everybody's busy. Like, I can't get anybody on stage, and I don't want to call anybody random. Like, uh, we can make it work. And I was like, okay, but it's just gonna be me and you, bro. Like, like <laughs> if you fuck up, it's gonna be real obvious. You know? <laughs> like, if I fuck up, it, it's gonna be real, real yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah. And we went and did it, and it was a fucking hit, man. And you know, somebody recorded it, thankfully. And you know. We kept showing people like, "Hey, look what we did at this thing," and people were like, "Shit, what's that? Yeah. Damn, you guys got to make a record like right. like that. That is something spectacular. That's something different." And so we're like, "Yeah, yeah," but it was just like a thing we did it. You know, one, we're gonna do it one time. Like it was just an experiment. Like it worked, whatever. But we started hearing it uh, hearing it enough. You know, you know, people started giving it. Even Stanley Clark even said, "Man, that's the next record you should come out with." Uh, we started hearing enough that we decided to make a group uh, a group out of it and really get in the studio and start writing songs with that concept mm-hmm. and uh, start producing an EP. We, we just finished producing an EP that, that sort of is a proof of concept of, of what the group's going to sound like. And we've mm-hmm. been doing lots of songwrites with it, too. We went to Nashville for a week to hook up with some songwriters out there. We've been doing some songwriting out here in L.A. And that's definitely going to be the next project that we're coming out with, hopefully next year. Cool. Uh, and is, is this is this more strictly a recording project, or is it something that you can recreate live with just the two? Of well, you? it's definitely going to be something that we can recreate recreate live. I mean, we're we're taking when we go to the studio, we're almost trying to limit ourselves a little bit to that 
thing. Like, like okay, can we, uh, we want to add this part, but can we do it live or how can we do it live? You know? Right. So it seems like a lot for, for two people to do, but there's definitely a lot of sound that we were able to create and a lot of, uh, dynamics and a lot of, you know, uh, grandiose, uh, musical styles that we're able to recreate. And the record is, is, you know, it definitely has like a, like a jazz sentiment, but it's more of like a, like a, like a super soul, funky, you know, almost like rock and roll type of thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's meant to be more grandiose and kind of on the same lines of like bringing this music to a bigger and, 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 and greater audience, you know, more diversified audience. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're, I mean, the big plan, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take us to do this, is to have all these bands out on the road together. Wow. You know, have Miles touring Uprising, and then we break in the middle of a set and do a, a BFI, you know, half an hour. Or BFI is on tour, and we bring out the Uprising for a week, and then send everybody else that's in the Uprising home, or on Kamasi's gig, and then we are still gigging with the Uprising, or with, with BFI, or maybe Miles and I with BFI collaborate with other artists. You know, the, the idea is, to, is, is we're creating this business and we're creating this, you know, legacy, hopefully that, that we'll be able to monetize off of and, and, and tour and make records and, and, and keep creating for the rest of our lives. You know? Yeah. That's ambitious. It's quite ambitious, but man, we're musicians and our life is scary, bro. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know it's like, like I, I barely have healthcare. I definitely don't have retirement, you know, right. not a 401k or whatever the hell you call that shit. Yeah. I have what I have, whatever in my, whatever in my pocket. And, that shit can be gone tomorrow. You know, nothing lasts forever unless you build your own thing, man. And, yeah. And, when, when I you think, put it like that, uh, you know, an ambitious project like that isn't really any less, any, any more scary than, you know, grinding it out, uh, gig to gig, you know? Yeah. And just being a, a new side man for some, you know, the gigs come and go, dude. So after yeah. the gig's done, it's like you go home and no one, everybody forgot about you. Cause you've been on the road for so damn long. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, then you gotta go carve back your little thing and try to get another <laughs> gig. You know, that's scary too, man. Like, I think I think all of us in the West Coast get down and Kamasi included have, have been thinking in the last you know six years like why not carve something out for ourselves like we have this amazing unit unit of musicians and we're already sort of supportive of each other we can be our own side man mm-hmm. you know and we could create something that's that's big and that's something that 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 we could you know uh, ensure a future for 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 all of us you know mm-hmm. a, a bright future and a plentiful future and yeah. I think all of us are on that page. And I mean, I don't, it's not like an arrogant thing, man. Like, like honestly, like, like uh, I wake up in cold sweats, you know, sometimes at night thinking about where the hell am I going? Like <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm 80 years old, will I be able to like pay rent? Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough life being a musician, but I, I, I feel like, like all of us in the West coast get down around the same page of like, well, let's create something that we can eat off of and can be 80 years old, you know, either playing music or, or, or still enjoying this legacy that we created, and I think that's where, where all of our direct, or all of our minds are sort of pointing in that same direction. And, and hopefully, you know, we get to do it, and we get to, you know, be this super group that that tours the world. World, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're already that. It's. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I want to go back uh, for a minute to your to your origins. You're a yeah. native native of L.A. Um, and something interesting I read about you was, uh, you know, when you were a little kid, like around six or seven, you were the, the beneficiary of the, uh, the big brothers, big sisters program. Um, Mm -hmm. so talk about who, uh, your big brother was and and the influence that he had on you as, as a person and a musician. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, my, my mom was a single parent, um, 
and uh, she, uh, when I was around seven years old, got me involved in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Mm -hmm. And uh, at time, they were sort of limited on Big Brothers, and you know, they they interview you and try to like pick you or, or try to pair you with someone that has similar interests. And you know, at that time, I was playing drums, and I was like, I'm a drummer. I want to be a drummer, and and that's that. That's all I am. I'm nothing else, you know. Mm -hmm. Um. So it took like about two months. Like they were, they didn't have someone to pair me with. They didn't know how to pair me. And the the lady, I remember the lady came over and she's like, "Well, there's this guy. Um, you know, he just signed up, and and he's not a drummer, but he invented a drum machine. <laughs> so maybe you'll, you guys will have you know some commonalities." And I was like, "What's a drum machine?" And they tried to explain it to me. I was like, uh, "I don't care. Like that sounds cool. Like I've been waiting here for two months for a big brother. Like." I'll try it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy they chose for me was this guy, Roger Lynn. And uh, for, I don't know if you know who Roger Lynn is. He's, he's the guy who created the MPC 60. And before that, the Lynn drums basically created the most iconic drum machine that all hip hop artists and all music producers in the eighties and even the nineties were using. Um, right. It, it pretty, pretty much revolutionized the music business. Right. One of the, uh, one of the big brains in electronic music. He is one of the like big brains of electronic music in there with the same uh, in there with the same company as like Bob Moog, right? And you know, uh, Kurt Weil and and uh, you know Dave Smith and um, you know any of the big sort of big tech music makers. And those are all his really good friends, by the right. way. Right. So you're seven um, years old hanging out with this so, guy in the afternoon. So I'm, I'm I'm seven years old. I didn't really get who the hell Roger Lynn was and what the hell he made. Right. You know. Uh, but he had this really big ass studio in his in his house with his drum machines and like uh, tape recorders and, and MIDI set up. And so that's what we did once a week, man. As uh, we uh, we went to his house and like cut songs and like like wow. he taught me how to how to use his, his the MPC sixty and how to use um, uh, the DX seven synthesizer and like how to hook it all up with MIDI and like use this computer to like sequence everything. And this is in the eighties, bro. Like this yeah. is like when this is like 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 you know new shit like this was like 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 cutting edge stuff like right. hooking your 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 synthesizer up to midi and having it record the mini notes and all that stuff like or having the the mvc 60 like sequence the whole entire track and then cutting that to tape like this is cutting cutting edge stuff right like studios you know, studios in la and new york didn't have access to this yet and you were screwing barely, around with it as a seven-year-old <laughs> <laughs> yeah, barely. You know, you know, thirty-year-old veterans didn't even know how to use half the shit that, that I was that I was, you know, learning how to use and, right. and 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 successfully learning how to use. So, you know, Roger was definitely um, pivotal in my passion of of, of audio engineering and, and sort of the tech side of audio. Because, gosh, what what a like like to just at seven years old and beyond that, you know, every week to just go and play with the gear and and create. And have this new palette on top of the drumming that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Have this new palette that I could get my creations out on was absolutely excellent, you know. And then, you know, Roger, when I was seven years old, bring me to Nam. Wow. You know, and <laughs> and like, you know, I went to Nam. My first Nam was seven years old, man. And like, it was completely different than the way it is now, man. Yeah. It was like everything was about tape decks and like tape re recreations. You have all these big gigantic tape making machines and like, like I, th I think um, console automation had just came out. So on the floor were all these gigantic consoles with these flying faders like moving around and like these wow. different patterns and everybody's like ooh, <laughs> and you, you know, and you had all these like you had all these '80s hair metal bands like like walking around in their full costumes and high heels and shit. And, yeah, like, they're they're still there. 
they're still there, but it was like it was like there was like fifty percent more of them. You right, know? right. <laughs> uh, you know, so it was a trip, man. Like I, I feel like I was I was introduced to this this world of music and this sort of production side, tech side of music at a really young age, and it's it's really benefited benefited me uh, for the rest of my life. You know, and for that, I'm I'm greatly in debt to to Roger Lynn. You know, he's always been um, a mentor, even after you know we, we we stopped seeing each other once a week or whatever, and after we sort of parted from the Big Brothers Association. He's been just an overall mentor in my life, you know, someone I could always call and, and count on and, and get advice about stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, help with. And he's since then, he's made his own he's <clears throat> made his own products with his, his own uh, business. And I've kind of helped him out with some of that stuff. And, and uh, we still very much keep in t- contact. And yeah. So that, that's beautiful. Friends. I was I was going to say, like, there there was probably a point at which, you know, you you became colleagues in, in the music business. Yeah, it's it's weird, man. Like like, it's really weird because you know I, I feel like when I met Roger, I was definitely too young to appreciate it. Like like, uh, there was a there was a time <laughs> where he he uh, he got when we were hanging out, he got a phone call from um, this uh, engineer Bruce um, who was working at Record One in the Valley, and he's like, "Hey, uh, I gotta go to the studio and fix one of the machines and update the software. You want to come?" And I was like, uh, "Yeah, I'm sure, I'll come to the studio. What's the studio?" and he's like yeah there's this guy quincy jones working on his on his on his record and i was like oh, okay whatever sure yeah. i guess i'll go yeah and we went to the studio it's the first time i saw like a big ass console and so it's all these things to touch and go fuck around with and and quincy jones is in the studio cutting back on the block basically and they're doing they were doing keyboard stacks and and bruce his engineer was in there and he needed a little update for the mpc 60 and I remember this, this. I have this memory, like super vivid, because it was Quincy Jones's birthday, <laughs> and they they brought out a cake and sung Happy Birthday. But I had no idea who the hell Quincy Jones was. Right. I, and I gave zero fucks about it too. Like, <laughs> I wanted to go play with all the toys and look at the microphones and like. I remember I shook his hand. He's like, "Oh, nice to meet you, son." And like I was like, "Cool, later." Boo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, and 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 um. You know, that's when I was like eight years old. And now I know, you know, after that, I've found out who Quincy Jones was. And like, he became one of my most, you know, studied producers and, and, mm-hmm. and a guy that like I really look up to. And it's funny going back to that studio now and having that memory as an adult, as someone who's actually there to work and cut and engineer. It's like, 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 it's funny that, that I have that attachment. And there's a lot of things that like I see now were, were like, I'm on the same level as Roger as far as like, you know, where I am at in my career. And like, we are more colleagues in the same business than we are sort of little brother, big brother, you know, like, mm-hmm. like I, I think I have reached that level in my career where like Roger calls me for advice, you know, like, mm-hmm. Hey, uh, he called me, uh, in the summertime. He was like, Hey, uh, um, uh, you know, what, what, what's everybody into, man? Like, I feel like I, I want to come up with a new product, but I don't know, I don't know what, what people are into nowadays. And it's like, I'm like really feel like awesome that you're you're calling me and like you you really think that my opinion you know is is cool like that like right. you know the guy who invented the drum machine is, is calling me for advice about what his next invention should be i, right. I think that's you know super heartwarming and, what, and, what, what and, did you suggest to him um i don't think it was a suggestion more or less than just a conversation about you know where music is and where it's heading you know our our conversation you know roger is is uh, I'm a very highly intelligent person, um, and and uh, you know he has an engineer's brain. So a lot of times when we talk, it's like very tech heavy and very mm-hmm. like long conversations and 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 drawn out stuff. And and 
you know, he's really one of the very few people that I can have conversations about that or conversations like that. So we don't necessarily talk about specifics like, oh, yeah, you should come out with a guitar that uh, plays itself and has a drum machine on it. Like it's more or less like like talking about where the music tech business is going and what voids are out there and what other people are creating and how successful they've been. You know, Roger knows. He knows everybody. He knows all the company heads. You know, he kind of grew up around an era where where there was sort of a renaissance in, 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 in uh, technology, like mm-hmm. around the 90s. Like technology was just exponentially getting better and better and better. And people were sort of branching out. And he was, you know, he's definitely collaborated with a lot of people. And he's part of like this sort of fraternity of, of, of great minds that like have pretty much shaped music technology in the last 20 years, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, you know, he definitely has a lot of resources to, and a lot of brains to pick, but, you know, I, I feel like when we, when we talk, we don't necessarily talk specifically, like we just sort of bounce ideas off of each other. Right. And it's cool that it, it sounds like, you know, you've, you've become one of his, you know, like he was your resource for, for all the yeah. technology and everything that was possible yeah. there, but now you're yeah. a resource for him as far as having your thumb on the pulse of music. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I'm a musician. I'm out there. I'm playing. I'm, I'm producing. You know, I'm in studios now. You know, Roger isn't necessarily. You know, he he was a recording artist for a while. He was he he played with Leon. Where was it? I think yeah, Leon Ware for a while. He played guitar. Mm-hmm. He's not he's not even a drummer. He was a guitar player. Mm-hmm. You know, and so his, his ideas stemmed from like he got the the light bulb ideas from being in the studio and like cutting records. And so since he's not really in the studio cutting records anymore, and I am, you know, I'm and I'm out there playing. You know, I think he sees it like. And, and like I'm a creative person and, and like I've been under his tutelage for the last seven years or for, since I was seven years old. Um, he sort of sees that maybe I might be able to have some ideas as, as to, you know, or to connect with ideas that that would be you know useful uh, for, for people like me that want to spend money on, on music technology. Talk about your uh, experiences traveling to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and performing for troops over there. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I've been in Iraq about five times. Wow. Um, maybe even six, I think, and a few other military bases um, around the world. Um, I think about 10 years ago, um, I started doing a lot of audio engineering um, for live shows and also for TV and film. And uh, I started working with a friend of mine, this guy, Ben Adamson. We started working for a company where we basically set up uh, festival-sized stages. And uh, I started doing monitors and, and uh, stage managing, stuff like that, just sort of as a side gig. Just like, you know, like, like, you know, gigs were slow, and I needed like a little side thing, a side hustle to make some extra money. And, you know, I knew a lot about sound and how to, like, you know, set up microphones and, you know, knew my frequencies really well. So it just was really easy for me to get work as a as a as a you know a front house engineer as a monitor engineer as like a like a stage manager because i knew how to set stuff up mm-hmm. so uh, me and me and ben were working together for a while and he's like yeah man um you know i go to iraq every so often to tour manage for groups out there is that something you would be interested in and i was like uh yeah how much does it pay and he told me and i was like yeah i'm down to go like i've never been there before and it'd be kind of cool to you know get a a, a a unique perspective on what's going on out there. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't know why, but I wasn't really afraid of like going in the middle of a war zone. Like I, I found it adventurous, mm-hmm. you know, like setting up, setting up and torment. First of all, tor- tormenting a group and, and like setting up a stage in the middle of some, you know, crappy military base, you know, tiny little military base out in the middle of nowhere in Iraq 
that sounded like fun to me, you know? <laughs> so, uh, the opportunity came and, um, I tour managed, uh, a group called black street with Teddy Riley was my first uh, group that I brought out there. And, um, they came out with the original members of black street and then a whole band. And I had to advance their whole entire show. You know, when you're in Iraq, there's no guitar center or SIR. Like we had to fly in the gear from Kuwait, you know, and, and, uh, and basically there's no stages out there. So we had to like build our own stage every single day that we were there. And we were oh. flying in military aircrafts and like, you know, we had to do combat landings every, every base we got to so that we wouldn't get shot at coming in. Wow. Um, the first, the first, after the first concert we did, we got mortar and we had to like run into like bunkers and stuff like that. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it's like not at one point was I really like afraid of it. Like, like, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I had this calming sense that I wasn't going to die today. You know, I wasn't going to die out here. Uh-huh. And I found the experience to be invigorating, man, because it was a super unique experience. Like I got to go to Iraq. I've been uh, to most of the bases out there. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to shoot anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to like fend for my life. And I got to like give, be part of a of a company. I also went out there to play with a couple bands myself. But I got to like you know, give entertainment to all these military men and women that are basically in a country that has nothing, they can't do anything. Yeah. You know, like, like it's boring as, as, as heck out there, man. Like, especially some of these bases that aren't, you know, very big. There's a lot of very small bases. They call them fobs, forward operating bases. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there. They don't even have, they don't even have hot food most of the time. Like they're eating MREs and like pretty much like hating life. And they're stuck there for nine months. You know, and there's, there's, you know, luckily, the different, uh, you know, the military uh, started investing in recreational programs uh, to to keep you know these people occupied and to uh, give them sort of things, relaxing things to do when they're not working, when they're not like clearing minefields and you know doing their stressful job. And so, you know, I felt lucky to be a part of that and, and to sort of do my part to give back to to the you know the brave men and women that were out there serving our country. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I did a, a a similar thing for the first time recently. I didn't go to Iraq. I went to South Carolina, which is, you know, mm. kind of the same. Not really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, a band I play with uh, got hooked up with like the South Carolina chapter of the USO. So mm. we've done some events for them. And uh, over Christmas, we played a, like a big party for about 300 troops who were between the ages of 18 and 20 who had nowhere to go for Christmas. Oh wow! Um, either nice. be, either because they were homeless before they were in the military, or right. you know they're from Thailand or Afghanistan right. or someone can't get home, or because right. you know they left home because it was a shitty place and that's why right. they're in the military. So right. there's these 300 kids, and we just played. It was a big party for them. We played cover tunes for them to sing and dance to. But I had heard from many people before that playing for troops is the most appreciative audience you will ever get. And, and they did not disappoint. It was really an amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh I can imagine, uh, you know, going to, a, a, a base in North Carolina, you said North Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, it, they are absolutely appreciative in Iraq. I mean, like I said, there's nothing to do out there. Most of the time it's hot as, as crazy hot and mm-hmm. sandstorms. And, you know, it's a boring place to be, man. Like, like, as soon as we got there, it was like the whole base was uplifted and like people were super excited about seeing whatever entertainment we had in store for them. And I worked with a company 
that you know they didn't just bring out music they also brought out comics and cheerleaders and mma you know stars so it was it was more like a variety of 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 enter, entertainment that, that they brought out and every time we we would land at the base like everybody would be so excited and, and people would be out there helping us load our gear off the thing and just you know really supportive and 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 uh we, we definitely got the sense that like this was meaningful and like you know these people really appreciated it and it, and it you know made it made it made it feel better about you know climbing on some military plane for three hours and having a bob around you know and having everybody throw up around it's like well it, this is kind of worth it because i'm giving something that 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 seems like it's being received very well and 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 you know i, I don't think i've ever done anything like that in my career ever and and I, I hope i hope i get to continue to do it sometime in the future it was great talking to you man yeah man thanks for doing it appreciate it bro talk to you soon thanks to tony for that great talk I recommend you check out some of what he's up to with the various projects the West Coast Get Down encompasses. Just go to Google or YouTube and search West Coast Get Down or Kamasi Washington or Miles Mosley. I promise you won't have to look hard. Like I said, the music they're making and uh, the way they're making it might draw some side-eye from people who have some preconceived notions about how jazz is supposed to sound and look and feel but I think they're shaking it up in a way that will create a bigger jazz tent for musicians and listeners alike. Come back next week for Matthew Krause's interview, and if you haven't already, check out the episode he did last week. It was a roundtable discussion entitled The Black Drummers of Nashville. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback about what was said and learned in that episode about the intersection of music and race. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thank you for listening. See you next time. 